Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Um, I got a good visual reaction from the other people on camera today, so maybe I won't do that loud uh, first word in the future. Um, we're excited to have you listening. If this is the first time, if you're tuning in because this is arguably our most recognizable franchise that we're talking about, Quick Sales Pitch, Certified Forgotten is a podcast that talks about films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. We try and dig a little bit through some of the stuff that hasn't developed a reputation. Good quality films for the most part. Donato and I might disagree on some of the selections there, but movies that, that were released did not endure and we hope culture will circle back to them a little bit later. And I do, Donato, I want to apologize to you right out of the jump because we're talking about we're talking about the wrong doom today, I feel like for you, because I know, and we'll get into it with our guest in, in, in a bit, but I, I know that if you could if you could choose which doom to talk about you'd probably be talking about the other one the original doom video game adaptation is fantastic i will die on that hill it is one of the best video game adaptations we have to date and yeah i'm probably going to bring that up again on this podcast just because i have that opportunity you know it's things like that that make me happy because I've watched you, you know, we've been in business for a few years now. I've watched you grow as an individual. I've I've watched you, you know, become the man you are today. But your adherence to Doom lets me know that that there are parts of you that just still aren't, you know, you're that that there's little bits of you that are still stuck in that college mindset. That's totally fine. I respect it. I understand it. I didn't have a Doom poster on my wall. That was for the Boondock Saints and all those other generic posters. Oh, wow. It's um <laughs> It, it, listen, well, let's talk about let's talk about Doom in a minute, because I think I don't I don't want to I don't want to dive into that and not give our guest an opportunity to to give his opinion on the Doom movies as well when we get there. So, Donato, can you do us a favor, please, and introduce this week's wonderful guest? Absolutely. Uh, our guest has already made their presence known, so I won't waste that much time <laughs> getting into it. You have read their work pretty much goddamn everywhere. So William Bibiani, the rap co-host of the Critically Acclaimed Network. Thank you for being here. Hi. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, boy, do we uh, have some strong opinions to share today about various Doom-related and possibly Boondock Saints-related things. Um, <clears throat> that That is, th to have a Boondock Saints poster on your wall is such a, like, it, was it next to your Scarface poster? No, it was next to, it was next to my System of Down poster. Yes. Oh <laughs> uh, i've been in i was in so many dorms that apparently were your dorm yeah <laughs> like straight I, up they, yeah like oh my god that's beautiful that's a beautiful you know what's uh, funny though is if you actually like it's it's circle all the way back where if you had a system of down poster on your wall right now that would be cool as shit that would be like i would be like respect really okay yeah yeah i, I think more. You know, you got to give everything. The, the general premise of the show is if you give everything about 20 years, then eventually everything that, that kind of flopped a little bit gains cachet and is cool once more. Not that System of Down was ever a flop. I don't know if it's that. Like for me, my theory about that and how like because there's this whole thing about how like every movie that people hated when it came out is now becoming a cult classic to somebody. And it's there's always like good actually blank is the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas is good actually, and I actually agree with that one. But I think it's less that like it, everything is like cyclical or whatever. I think it's just when a movie comes out, a lot of people see it, and a lot of people are ambivalent at right off the jump, and they stop talking about it after opening weekend. The people who really didn't like it 
we'll talk about it for a while, maybe more often if it's part of a franchise and it keeps coming up in conversation a lot. After 20 years, the only people who are probably still talking about it are the people who really liked it. And it's not that everyone else now agrees. It's that they just don't care enough to, to, re, to do a rebuttal. They haven't rewatched it recently enough. The movie didn't take a step forward. Everyone who disliked it took a step back. I would agree with that. However, sometimes there really are great movies that just didn't get enough buzz or context has changed or... Uh, you know, there's just a new perspective that we can lend to it that maybe it didn't get when it first came out, be it that fair or otherwise. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the best example of that on this podcast today, but uh, we will be talking about uh, uh, one of the Doom movies and presumably the other one, which apparently at least some of us think was good, actually. You're, you're not going to read my 20-year anniversary piece on Doom in the 2000s? No, I'm not. I'm absolutely not going to read that. Um no, I rewatched. I actually rewatched that version of Doom not that long ago, and no, is my rebuttal to that. <laughs> well, that's fine because in 2026, I'll write my "Stay Alive" was good actually piece, and that okay, good actually or entertaining actually, both actually. What? Okay, okay. The rails are the 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 okay. jacks are starting to wobble a little bit, y'all. Two thousands horror podcast episode. I know what you do. I, I love two thousands horror. That's fun, but my God, stay alive! A movie that doesn't understand video games, history, human nature, or vampires. Yeah, like, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> that's that's fine. I worked in I worked in video game quality assurance when that movie came out. That that was absolutely like everyone hated that movie. It's like, how do you test a game that kills you the way you die in the game? It's like, hey, Joey died in the game by being eaten by wolves, and in reality, he was he was like hit by a bus. We gotta fix that bug. We cannot ship like this. Donato, are you checking right now to see how many reviews Stay Alive has on Rotten Tomatoes? I've already checked already. Right. It, it's right. over. It's, it's I've already. Yeah. Uh well, William, let's start. Let's start because you kind of opened the door here a little bit. Um, your uh, your official LA Film Critics bio, um, which I, I love, you have you have two lines in here that I think are really great. Is that you say that that your emphasis is about contextualizing contemporary films and standing up for underdog cinema, which I think you just hit on in talking about sort of your you know opinion on on rediscovery and stuff that endures. So because you've written everywhere. Normally we say, oh, what was the earliest days to horror? I want to, I want to hear that story. But because you write for everywhere, what does that mean for you as a modern writer? When you're talking about contextualizing films and standing up for underdogs, what, is the, what does that mean for the landscape of places you can write about, about movies about right now? What, what does that look like? I write for a lot of different places and different uh, publications have different ethoses, different mission statements, sometimes just a different vibe. And you have to work within that. Um, but generally, what I find is that uh, there is in the realm of mainstream film criticism, where the purpose isn't, you know, you, your uh, publication, Certified Forgotten, has a very specific mission statement. We're going mm -hmm. to uh, highlight films that are dramatically overlooked uh, and in particular don't get a lot of reviews on, on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but when you're just reviewing everything and the purpose is to explore every movie that comes out, regardless of uh, genre or pre-existing audience or popularity or whatever, you run the risk of over um, over accentuating the mainstream releases 
or maybe the classiest of the art house releases, and then sometimes glossing over the less ambitious, uh, ambitious, the less the less ambitious films, the the genre films, the uh, horror films, action movies, the low budget schlock, uh, and and when I was growing up. And I was watching film critics like Siskel and Ebert are the obvious ones, but I was also reading, you know, Mandela Dargis. And, um, and not all of them were equally guilty of this, but I would see film critics whose work I normally respected and admired and who had guided me to interesting ideas about film and to watch movies I otherwise wouldn't, would sometimes be weirdly dismissive of genre films, in particular horror, but sometimes action kung fu films uh, uh and that frankly ticked me the hell off and when i when i would read like ebert review like a halloween sequel and you could just see his eyes rolling in the back of his head as he was like writing uh, a paragraph of a movie that yeah not all of them are good some of them are uh it made me want to be a film critic because i wanted there to be more voices in this industry who we're willing to admit that there might be something to these films that are often overlooked or underappreciated before it's too late mm-hmm. to help their reputation to actually have someone. And again, that doesn't mean I like every single genre film I see. I, I, I just wrote a really, really negative review of the nun too. I did not care for it, but there's a lot of, of genre films that I see a lot more in, apparently, than a lot of my peers. Uh, and I think a big part of being a film critic, a lot of people think that, like, it's all a dog pile. It's all, you know, everyone's got to, like, have the same opinion. Everyone's got to rally behind the same movies. But what film criticism is more than anything else is being honest about your opinion and explaining it. And if your opinion runs counter to what other people think you have to be able to say, I think you're wrong. I think this movie everyone likes is terrible. Or I think you're wrong. And I think this movie everyone hates has is either great or has some validity. So when that happens, I, when I find myself, you know, enjoying a movie, I will be flat out. I will be blunt. I will tell people, I think this is, good entertaining more intelligent than it's getting credit for more timely than it's getting credit for uh you know a lot of movies are a mixed bag very few things are i would consider to be all or even mostly good or all or even mostly bad but i think it's vitally important that we give every film a fair shake on its own terms and one of the ways that we can do that is by contextualizing it properly Uh, a lot of movies oftentimes i find uh get Uh, critically derided either from professional critics or people who just really love movies a lot uh, because there is a certain built-in expectation of what the film is going to be, what the film is supposed to be. And that's not necessarily what the film is. And I find a lot of the movies that get rediscovered over time uh, are, are rediscovered because when they first came out, they were marketed a certain way or the buzz was a certain way. And people thought, Oh, this movie was supposed to be uh, like Starship Troopers is a great example of this, where the movie was marketed very unironically. It was just a big old action spectacular from the guy who brought you RoboCop and total recall, ignoring the fact that RoboCop and total recall were extremely subversive films. Uh, And then people saw it. And they realize, oh, the the tone of this is so weird and arch and the performances are so fake. This must be a bad action movie. 
But very quickly, some people realized or, or started to speak out more that it it is intentionally arch. It is intentionally superficial because it is a propaganda film. It is a satire of the way that Hollywood turns militaristic action movies into propaganda and how inherently fascistic that idea is. That's a hard sell. I'll grant you that. I don't envy the marketing department trying to get that across. And I kind of get why they just wanted to trick people into the theater by saying it's a big old action movie. But when you leave the theater, if you were expecting just a big old action movie and you ended up getting something strange and challenging, you might say to yourself, I did not get what I was sold. Therefore, it must be bad. But if you apply the proper context, if you consider where Paul Verhoeven was coming from, the shots that he shoots, the specific uh, 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 references that he makes to, to history and other and other uh, pop culture, um, you can tell what wavelength the movie is actually on. And so that's something I try to do all the time, whether I'm watching a new film, whether I'm watching older films from my podcast, uh, is to consider a variety of factors in order to get a, hopefully a more complete view of what the movie uh, is intended to be based on what we can tell, and sometimes that's easier than others. Uh, but also the various different lenses through which we can view it. Because I find sometimes when I'm watching a movie and I'm not enjoying it, my first thought is, oh, this is bad. My first thought is actually, and my first thought isn't, oh, this is bad. My first thought is actually, what am I doing wrong as an audience? Am I viewing this movie wrong? Am I... Mm-hmm looking at it through the wrong lens. Is this bad if I look at it from this perspective, but is it good if I look at it through the perspective of maybe this character isn't the primary focus and this other character is, or maybe the genre that it is intended for, it isn't a very good example of, but there's an undercurrent of film noir that really kind of rescues it if you can view it from that angle. So I wasn't really prepared to give a lecture and have a cohesive a thesis about no, this, but hopefully, hopefully that that gets some idea of where I come from. Well, and I like I want to jump in really quickly because you talking about where you are coming from and how you address film criticism. Like for me, where I got to in my criticism, and you know, I started out doing everything like in mm. trying to think like twenty twenty twelve when I really started getting into it and like doing this way more as just not a hobby as an actual second job. Uh, I was reviewing every mainstream release for the site I was at because I was the main critic, but I would do the indie horror and I would squeeze in the things that I was really passionate about. And where I saw my trajectory go and where I saw getting to where I am now is like basically primary horror and, uh, you know, doing the mainstream and not doing more yeah. features for the mainstream, but reviewing the the smaller stuff is because everything you just said. And I realized as you were saying it, it was because I was reading <laughs> Honestly, I was reading like Weinberg. I was reading you. I was reading Niska. I was reading like in my early, earlier times, I was reading all the writers who were trying to give a voice to the movies that weren't getting the voices elsewhere. And for me now, like my mission statement is I would rather be one of three reviews on a horror movie no one gave the time of day to than one of 300 on the next Marvel Mm -hmm. movie. Like I... It's not because I'm trying to stand out even. It's because no one needs my 300th review of said Marvel movie when yeah. I can actually put my time towards something and find the next Dude Bro Party Massacre or something like that. Like I, yeah. I am so much more invested in finding the next XYZ than being one of 400 people who has an opinion on Rotten Tomatoes about the movie everyone already knows their opinion on. 
Yeah. And I and again and and I think that there's a lot of different ways to approach film criticism. Mine is not the only way. Yours is not yep. the only way. Yep. And I do think there is some validity to uh, expressing your opinion about something that is incredibly popular because the fact of its popularity uh, means that it's going to reach a lot of people, and that we actually do need a lot of conversation about what that movie, whether it is uh, thematically ambitious or all of its sort of actual real world relevance is more subtextual uh, or subconscious. Um, I think we need to have those conversations, but yeah, if, on, uh, that's on, on the other hand, there's a lot of movies. There's so many movies, you guys. And I see so many publications only focusing on the handful of big ones. And that's something we try to do at critically acclaimed is, and you know, again, it's just, it's just two of us. You know, we're, we're, we do the best we can to review as many movies as we can every week. But although we try to watch the biggest movies, we also try to make sure we make time for straight to video stuff or uh, tiny indies or international films as much as we possibly can. And I think I think if you exclusively focus on those, that's great. And that is certainly a niche. And you can actually you can absolutely uh, uh, do some really wonderful work. And I think what we're specifically trying to do is we're trying to remind people who maybe are only into mainstream cinema that there is other cinema out there. And by putting those things together, by making sure that those covered, that coverage runs concurrently, uh, we remind people that film, the films that they like do not exist in a vacuum and that they do not uh, represent the sum total of everything out there. Because a lot of people don't watch that as many movies as we do. Mm-hmm. in a year they just don't and that's one of the reasons why we have film critics there literally isn't enough time for everyone to see everything so they don't know what's out there and what's good or not so we try to tell people this is interesting this is well made this is exciting this is new this is just really entertaining and otherwise you might not have heard about it because it doesn't have a 100 million dollar marketing budget so that's that's part of it it's an important part of it yeah and i, and I like the I was going to say, I'm going to jump in one more time and I'm going to give it back to you, Mom, because I know this is usually, usually your section, but like, you're good, you're good. Uh, like one of the things I learned also, and I think one of the lessons that some critics can learn as well, like not veteran critics who already know this most likely, but like newer critics, because when I was coming up, film criticism was the hot thing to do in our industry. So you wanted to be a film critic. You didn't want to just be an entertainment writer or something like that. But what has been broken in my mind, and like, I'm sure my roommate can hear me right now, but like Amelia runs this she's the streaming editor of IGN so it's like no pitch me a feature on that like it doesn't matter if you can't review something if you have an opinion on something just pitch the feature on it so it's mm-hmm. like I can save my reviews sometimes if it's a mm-hmm. really busy week let's say yeah. I can save my reviews for the movies that I really want to get a review on but I can still write that feature about you know Doctor Strange uh you know Mouth of Madness and my like I, I can still get my opinion out there as a feature so like it is that yeah, there are other that, avenues exactly there's other avenues of finding like I, I feel like sometimes film critics and I, I'm saying it because it was me it still is me sometimes like you have to write a review about something or it doesn't matter when like that's not totally true like you can write that feature and, and sometimes writing the feature is actually better because a review you gotta you know you're reviewing the entire film when you hit that one niche though in a feature sometimes you get like a really good discussion out of it I'm, I'm just gonna finish up one thing here and yep. then I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Monica talk for 10 minutes straight uh, that is actually, I think, really, really v- uh, vital here because people think that film criticism is just you review a movie. And actually, because largely of the way that, you know, the entertainment complex is built up now, that's only one thing 
that we do. And I know very few film critics who can make a living doing nothing but the actual film criticism part. So there's the practical level. But on the other level, you know, I do, I consider my social media, I mean, some of it's personal, I post a picture of my cats or stuff about me personally, but a lot of it is me trying to use that platform to raise awareness of other films that I'm doing, you know, amusing observations about them. If I'm watching older cinema, I try to sort of, uh, you know, say to anyone who might be following me for my film criticism, I'm watching an old movie right now, which is my way of saying, A, this movie exists, maybe you should check it out. And B, people do watch old movies. Like, it's not just the new releases. And I, what I've discovered from, uh, you know, correspondence with my listeners is that a lot of younger people watch older movies too. Uh, so there's a lot of different avenues that we can take and do take. Some of them are financial. You know, there's just, it's hard to be lucrative doing only one thing, but also uh, there's so many different ways to express yourself and to reach an audience that simply writing review probably isn't going to be the sum total of all you can accomplish and you should probably diversify. Anyway, uh, Monocle, 10 minutes, yours. No, I don't need that much time. Um, I will, I, I do want to ask, because you hit on something, William, that I think is really interesting and particularly relevant to today's film, which is the notion of context and context around films releases. A million years ago, um, I had a podcast for Film School Rejects that was based on a concept from a writer named Joe Posnanski, a sports writer, actually. And what he, he argued is that your opinion of a film is not actually anything on a scale of one to five. It's It's a scale of one to five of what you thought you were going to get going in exactly. and a scale of one to five, what you thought you were going to get coming out. And that, yeah. that is how you quantify your enjoyment of a project and that what you think, you know, about the actors, what the media coverage is, all of that, you know, we like in this industry, we like to pretend like we go in as this blank vessel and approach the film entirely on these completely neutral and objective terms. But I, I think of a movie like, and, and I'm, maybe this will date poorly, but I think of a movie like don't worry, darling, where because of all of the personal nonsense that was going on in Olivia Wilde's life because of the fighting that was happening with the set because of the assumed fighting with some of the actors all of that impacted and colored uh how people watched that movie how they sat down how they enjoyed sure. it. it it could not we're humans that's how it works mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm curious William what do you think I guess I could say what do you think film critics um have a responsibility to do in terms of trying to counterbalance that a little bit when they're when it's something that has a lot of positive or negative push mm -hmm. or noise or surrounding the release? Uh I, I say this uh as much as I possibly can, I'll keep repeating it. The most important thing a critic can do is be honest. And some people think that there is such a thing as objective criticism. That's a contradiction in terms. The art of criticism is the art of making qualitative statements using quantitative examples. You are expressing your opinion, but you can't just say, I think it's good. You actually have to back that up. And here's why I think it's good. And you point to things in the movie that, again, your interpretation may vary, but I can say, I look at this scene and the way this character was written and this line of dialogue and this action sequence and how it was edited. And obviously I would go into more detail if I had a specific example in front of me. Um, through that, I determine this is well-produced and this is why I had my opinion. It excited me. It tickled my funny bone. It spoke to bees on a personal level. And that's true for a lot of other things as well. I think it is uh, important for uh, a critic to be as frank as possible about how what they bring to a movie might impact what we're seeing. And that doesn't necessarily mean 
you know, oh, I was a huge fan of Star Wars my whole life. And so I like everything Star Wars. And I know some mm-hmm. people who are like that. and It's not for me. Um, not, not Star Wars specifically. Some isn't. But my point is that whole, like, I will like anything is, that is this just because it is this. That's not my ethos at all. I think if you are just expressing your genuine uh, feelings about something and how you reach those opinions, you will reveal something about yourself. And if the things that you are discussing in your review are revealing something about yourself, you will make it clear to your audience and you should, they should anyway, um, what elements going into the movie are affecting your point of view. And again, this is context. Sometimes it's an awareness of a filmmaker's entire line of work and how this film may or may not fit into it. If you're unfamiliar with that filmmaker's larger line of work, a film might hit you very differently because other people would say, well, this is, I don't know, David Cronenberg is being a little repetitive here and he's done this material before. But if it's the first time you've seen it, right, it right. might hit a lot harder. And that's something I try to be very cognizant of, that every movie is someone's first introduction to something. Uh, film, I, I say this a lot, film critics get tired of things a lot faster than other people because we see so many more movies. You know, it took... I don't know, like five, six years for like the found footage trend to build and then die out organically. But they made so many of them that film critics have probably already seen dozens by halfway through that process. And we're already like, we're getting really formulaic. Not a lot of people are really playing with this form. It's getting less interesting to us. But if you only watched four that entire time, even the formulaic ones are going to hit you harder. So the in that situation you would be clear that you watch a lot of these movies you are familiar with sort of the formula that is being developed when it comes to outside hype you cannot pretend that that doesn't exist and you can say to yourself well years from now that will be less of a factor there are so many movies that have come out to uh publicity storms or controversies and some of them are well remembered most of them are not most movies are certified or otherwise kind of forgotten just if you pick a rant you watch turner classic movies at like seven o'clock you're going to see a film you've probably heard of you watch it at four in the morning there's a decent chance you're going to see a movie that just happens to be old now it might be a great movie it might be a bad movie but more than anything else it's just an older movie probably and you're more likely to be able to watch that in a vacuum than if you were watching whether you see it for the first time or the millionth time alfred hitchcock's psycho and so you're watching an older movie and you're just you're, you're free of all of that baggage and you're watching the movie, not objectively, because you're still bringing your personal taste and your personal experiences and the things that you care about to that. And it's going to affect that or it, it, however it affects that. But you're not going to know that, oh, this came out like right after Robert Mitchum was arrested for marijuana possession and it was in all of the trades. You probably don't know that anymore, unless it comes with one of those wonderful intros where they give you that context. One of the things like about Turner Classic Movies, but a lot of them don't have that. Um so again, these the, this firestorm that can happen around a film like The Flash, which had so much baggage with it, not just because of Ezra Miller, but because everything that was going on at Warner Brothers and everything that was going on like with the superhero universe getting rebooted, it's extremely difficult not to look at that movie, which I think it was Darren Mooney who said this wonderful thing about it, where the movie was like... So th- the idea of a reboot usually happens off camera. There was this one version of this movie or movie franchise, then it got rebooted, and then we see the new version. The Flash was the reboot, 
that was the whole movie. We were going to literalize the reboot on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to get away from that in 30 years where a lot of that is faded. And maybe you've heard about some of it or maybe not, but a lot of people, you know, don't know about movies that came out more than 10 years before they were born. Anyway, people might view that film somewhat differently. I still don't think they'll find it was think it was very good, but at the very least they'll have less baggage. We cannot pretend the baggage isn't there is my point. So if you're less aware of it, you, you mentioned that, you know, where you're coming from, that will come across in your review. And if you are aware of it, I mean, hopefully you don't make it just about the context. You make it about how the context affects your view of a film, I guess. Sometimes, and sometimes that's relevant. And sometimes that that's, sometimes, it, though, there, sure. it depends yeah. on the purpose of what you're writing. Mm-hmm. If you're writing to explore the film, then your, your emphasis should be, regardless of what else you bring into it, the film. If your emphasis is on a grander uh, uh, sort of macro narrative, uh, what is happening socially and how this film relates to that, then the film will become part of the quantitative example for your larger point rather than vice versa. That's why like one of my favorite games to play after mm-hmm. a film festival is waiting like two years and then rewatching some of those movies I've seen in a film festival. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I have sure. absolutely found that I've been higher on some things. Cause maybe I, I a fantastic fest one mm-hmm. year, all their movies were so long for some reason. And it was like day five. And I watched three two hour movies. And by the last movie, I like, yeah. I was just exhausted and you could read it in my review. So then mm-hmm. I saw that movie again, like two, two years later. And I sat there and I was like, God, like if I just had the energy at fantastic fest, it would have been a little more, a little more praiseworthy. And- mm-hmm. Well, but, and that can also be the reverse. You mentioned that like you were like high on some movies and I've, I've done the Sundance film festival a few times and there the literal altitude can affect you. Yeah. Because if you're not from like a place that is at that altitude, like I'm from LA, first time I went to uh, to the Sundance, I actually got a little altitude sickness because uh, I didn't do my research. You know, you had to keep drinking water, breathing, all that kind of stuff. And afterwards, I was fine. But you know, all that stuff affects you. Seeing a film at a festival where there's a lot of buzz and where the people are actually who made it are in the theater, and a lot of people even if they don't like it, they're trying to be polite, and that creates this sort of mentality that maybe the film is better than it is because so many people are applauding. Um, We've seen it time and time again, where a movie that makes a huge splash at a film festival will then come out and people are like, it's okay. Or bad. Sometimes we just think it's actual crap and like we don't know what, what the hell anyone was thinking. Um, that The context of the presentation can be a factor, I think. Um, and it's something we have to be cognizant of. It's something we can't always... That, that, there's a certain hyper-awareness, I think, that we're discussing here that is maybe not... Um, feasible every single day but the important thing is that we're trying and that we're being as honest and frank as we are uh, as we can be about what we feel and why we feel that so i know that we didn't talk during kind of our, our first half section i know mm-hmm. we didn't talk probably as much about your background william as, as i would have liked though you certainly wove that into to a lot of your responses and i appreciate that but i think that this was a really important conversation to have because i think the movie that we're about to talk about now was uniquely situated to fall at the intersection of a lot of the things we've talked about, about cultural noise and reception and the trailer and the fandom and the community and all of that. This is a film that comes with as much baggage as any movie that has ever been released for respective to to its budget and size. So I I don't want to hold us back anymore from that conversation. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Dune Annihilation. Thank you. 
Okay, welcome back. So, Doom Annihilation is a 2019 horror film from writer-director Tony Gilio based on the popular Bethesda Softworks game. In the not-too-distant future, mankind has traveled to Mars and uses the reddest planet in our solar system as a research base for extraterrestrial creatures. But when a secret project on teleportation brings something inhuman back from the other side, a group of Marines is forced to lock down the station and save the scientists before all hell is unleashed. Released to controversy around its quality and emphatically disowned by Bethesda itself, Doom Annihilation has come to occupy a strange place in the annals of video game adaptations. William, I want to start with you because you mentioned being in both sides of the industry, working in video games and working in, in film. Ground us in a primer on how we should feel about a video game movie, especially one that was released three, four years ago and is kind of like before we got to like the last of us prestige shit, where was the industry at when this film came out? Well, when the industry came, when this film came out, um, watch, well, there's a lot of history here. First off, it's important to remember that doom, although it did not invent the first person shooter was one of the first big successful examples of that. Mm -hmm. And it was enormously popular and it got to the point where even though you can point to games like Wolfenstein as a predecessor as being, you know, actually first, things would be called Doom clones, all right? It was an incredibly big game, and the idea of making a movie out of Doom uh, had been floating around in the internet space and the entertainment space for many, many years before it actually happened in the 2000s uh, from director Andres Bartkoviak. Um, the, the film that we got you know, it starred Dwayne The Rock Johnson, it starred Rosamund Pike before a lot of people knew who that was, but it was still very cool. Uh, it starred Carl Urban, who was just off the Lord of the Rings movies. It had a lot of the elements that you would think would be recipes for success. And then it came out. Reviews were very bad. Uh, I'm sorry, Matt, justifiably. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, and it was yet another in a very long line of movies explicitly based on a particular video game that were considered often justifiably, but not always fairly, uh, very, very bad. Um, there are reasons for this. A lot of the, a lot of the video games that were being turned into movies uh, were already sort of paying homage to very specific genre tropes that preexisted. Doom, although it is about a Marine on Mars fighting demons from hell, owes a lot to the colonial Marine uh, sort of uh, uh, presentation and tropes of James Cameron's Aliens, for example. Uh, but also other films that James Cameron worked on, like Galaxy of Terror. Um, so when these films would come out in theaters, a lot of them, even if they were accurately sort of conveying how the game kind of felt, in a movie, you're, it feels like you're getting a copy of a copy. It's like the fourth Michael Keaton in Multiplicity. It just didn't really seem to work very well. Uh, it just felt like, you know, we've seen the good movie version of this, and now we're seeing the like twice removed movie version of this. Uh, and so a lot of them struggled and a lot of them failed to either work successfully or uh, find an appreciative audience in the fans who felt that like the overall experience of playing the game wasn't really captured in the film. And we can talk about the complexity of that in a minute. Um, and the people who weren't fans of the video game would see the, or hadn't played video games would see the movie and go, well, this is derivative this isn't very good i assume video games must be bad and in the 2000s back when roger abert was still with us he famously wrote that not only were video games not art but that they could never be art 
this is where a lot of the conversation about video game movies was the idea that the the failure of video game movies not that ebert was specifically talking about that was presenting the art of video games poorly to people who had never really played them so i think that there was a lot of baggage on every video game movie every video game movie that would come out the question they would ask the filmmakers is is this going to be the one that gets it right is this going to be like the tim burton's batman or whatever that's actually finally going to crack the code and show people like how this works um which ignores a lot of the other history of batman but never mind so when a movie like Doom Annihilation came out, which was a reboot, advertised more as a sequel, but it was actually a reboot of a movie that was not very successful, not very popular, uh, and uh, was a game that was a, a extremely influential and important, but kind of retro, and had only recently been uh, rebooted uh, by Bethesda, to the extent that the movie itself actually doesn't really incorporate anything from Bethesda and is actually more of an adaptation of the ID software uh, games, Doom 1 through 3. Um, I think there were two schools of thought going into Doom Annihilation. One, why even bother? And two, well, this has got to be great this time. Neither of those expectations are a setup for success. Unless you are absolutely phenomenal and can blow people away no matter what they're thinking going in, Going in with apathy or ambivalence or going in with high expectations that it must be really, really great. If you're anything less than really, really great, everyone's going to think you either failed to do what you did or I was right to be apathetic. And that's not a recipe to giving a movie a fair shake. When we asked you to come on the show, you picked this, which indicates to me having set us up for uh, what someone might think as they sit down to watch it, that you have a more favorable view of this than, than some other folks might. So let's, let's get to, let's get to the qualitative. Let's talk about your feelings on doom annihilation. Okay. Well, doom annihilation uh, is a movie that I gave. I'm going to, I'm going to be very, very clear here. I do not want to overstate how much I like this movie. I gave a passing grade. I don't love this movie, but I like this movie, and I think it does what it does reasonably well. I think that Doom Annihilation, uh, first off, more accurately captures what is in the game. That is not in and of itself a good thing, but if you care about that, Doom Annihilation is way more like the game than the, than the Andres Karkoviak movie is. Um, I think there are elements of its low-budget production that I think are very, very sound. I like a lot of the monster suits. I like a lot of the production design. Um, it's cheap very cheap and sometimes they call attention to that there's one bit i really like uh where they find themselves in a location that you will find in almost any horror movie which is um somewhere with a lot of pipes Mm -hmm. and it looks like it's in the basement of a building probably the basement of wherever the production company was if i were to hazard a guess uh and they 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 hang a lantern on it they say like hey i thought this was supposed to be like a high-tech installation on mars and it's like yeah they still need plumbing and I remember this one uh, comment Ridley Scott made on a commentary track for um, Alien. There's a scene where Harry Dean Stanton is all of a sudden in a room we've really never seen before. And it's full of pipes and they're dripping water. And someone asked him, what is this room for? Like, what is, what, what, what is, why is there all of this water in, in this room in space? And he just said, condensation. It's just there because... It's not, you're, you don't overthink every single part of it. It's just it there looks because fucking it looks cool. cool as hell. Yes, it looks cool. And honestly, you would need 
water to survive. You would need some kind of filtration system. All of these things kind of make sense. So I think on its given that it's a very low budget film, it actually looks pretty good. I think the visual effects are largely pretty good. All the space stuff looks really you know sharp and clean. Um, the characters are very very formulaic. Yes, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. The, the dialogue okay at best. But here's why I don't hate that because it's not pretending it's not a knockoff. It's not pretending that it, it, it is inventing anything. It is calling its shots. It is paying direct homage to Alien. There's a fun shout out to uh, Wolfenstein. The first body they find is William Blazkowicz. The main character from Wolfenstein is BJ Blazkowicz. Oh, that's cute. But it's operating in the realm of the Alien knockoff. We are not watching a film that is trying to be Alien we are watching a film that is trying to be the Charles Band knockoff of Alien. Mm. And while it could have more personality, it could have more wit, sure. Um, as a film with those expectations, and I think it sets those expectations very quickly, this is a very functional, and I use that word, uh, this is a very functional Marines fighting monsters in space movie. It is... Uh, coherent, which is something I can't say about the Andres Barkoviak film. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, cleanly presented. It actually tries to take the game uh, seriously might be the wrong way to put it, but it tries to approach I think a lot of video game movies attempt to fix the game. Right. They say to themselves, oh, this game doesn't make sense. I'm going to change all these things so it makes sense to me the filmmaker. And that's how you get a, a very strange and kind of wonderful film like Super Mario Brothers, the movie, uh, which overthought everything. Nobody cares where there are mushrooms. Correct. You don't need to explain, oh, the king was in the basement and turned into mushrooms. That doesn't make it better. That doesn't make it make more sense. People want to see what was in the game because the aesthetic is really, really important. The overall experience video games, although a lot of them are more narrative driven are way more experiential because you spend so much of the movie, uh, so much of the game, sorry, so much of that artistic experience in the moment, not just going through a plot point, but experiencing atmosphere, experiencing the actual action sequences from within. Whereas movies will try to get to the next major plot point and character interaction. So if you can get the experience right, if you can accurately convey the overall vibe, mm -hmm. I think you've done a lot of the work of getting a good video game adaptation that actually understands and captures what makes the video game work. Doom doesn't, uh, Doom Annihilation doesn't capture the intensity. I don't think it's quite well made enough for that. But if you asked me, what's the better adaptation of Doom? The one that actually understood how Doom worked what Doom really was and gave us the cinematic version of that, that I enjoy watching more. I'm going to pick Doom Annihilation every time. I'm not, and like, I'm not even going to argue on that. Cause I, I do agree. That was one of the things on the rewatch going through. I, I, I had remembered how intuitive it was like in how I tuned into the game. It was, but one of the big problems I have with a lot of video game adaptations goes off with what you just kind of said there, Bibbs. And it's the fact that, Video game movies don't want to be the video game. They want to be something else. The worst video game adaptations are actual adaptations of real video games that jettison anything that is relatable to the game and just tries to be the movie. 
where yeah. my favorite video game adaptations aren't based on actual video games. It's like Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. It's Hardcore Henry. It's things like that because yeah. they actually understand how video games work and they can actually like give that experience. The irony is we always say, like, oh, there's so few. I think now we've had a few genuinely good, maybe not great, but genuinely good video game adaptations, mostly in the last few years. But the old saw that, like, there are no good video game movies is only true, even if you believe that, if you look at adaptations, movies about video games, what they mean, what they represent, how they operate. We've had good versions of that for a very long time. War Games, The Last Starfighter, uh, what was it? Um, what was it with Dabney Coleman? Um, you got me there. Uh, it's, it's, I always want to say Flight of the Navigator or Flight of the Intruder. None of those are right. I'm going to look this up because it's going to drive me nuts. It's just one of those like Dermot Mulroney, Dylan McDermott things where I always pick the wrong title. Um, but um, yeah, there's a lot of great movies that try to incorporate video game narrative into filmmaking and they're quite good. Uh, Sam Mendes is 1917. He said he got one of the inspirations to make that movie from watching his kids play Red Dead Redemption. That is a video game movie in very, very, very structural ways. I would argue that something like Run, Lola, Run is in many respects kind of a video game movie. It is about a checkpoint system. Yep. If you die, you go back to the last checkpoint until you pass the level. That's the whole thing. Same with the uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, we're incorporating, some people are playing video games that they're incorporating video game narrative logic and storytelling elements into our cinema but we're not necessarily applying those to good movies adapted from video games and i think a lot of that has to do with this this general weird decision we make to only make movies almost uh or and, and tv uh out of video games that are the absolute most derivative oh we got to make another mortal Kombat movie it's just enter the dragon We've, we had all of these live-action Street Fighter movies. You know what none of them had? Street fights. Yep. None of them were about a goddamn like, street fighting competition. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's so simple. You can do it badly and still make it really fun. And they refused to do it. They felt the need to fix it. I've never understood that. Just lean into it. You're making something derivative if you're making a movie based on a derivative video game. Don't pretend otherwise. If you want to make something that is actually more interesting and challenging adaptive video game that isn't very explicitly derivative of something that is very, very popular in the mainstream. You know, this is one of the reasons why I think the Punisher is often struggled to work in film as well, because it was always just what if Charles Bronson was in the Marvel universe. So when you put it back in the movies, it's like, Oh, this is just a Charles Bronson movie. Yep. I mean, I guess that's okay, but it doesn't really seem like it stands out very well. If you want to like adapt a video game to a movie and have it feel not derivative, you got to pick a, I don't know, something like Psychonauts or something where it really does feel like a very bizarre, interesting new narrative that just happened to be told in the video game medium or took great, uh, 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 took great pains to make the most of that. And I'm going to look at that Dabney Coleman movie. because Give me that Conker's Bad Fur Day movie. That's, that's... There you go. <laughs> But I mean, like I do just the just the Normandy Beach uh, multiplayer yeah. level. Just yes, that. yeah. Uh, Dabney Coleman was in two video, great video game movies back to back. One was War Games. The other one is Cloak and Dagger, which okay. is about uh, it's a it's a, a kid gets wrapped up in a spy plot uh, because this like Atari video game cartridge he has like someone like hid like nuclear code secrets within the game. So you have to like play the game though. It's, it's really quite good. Actually. It's, it's very, it's a good double feature with war games. 
I like the the direction both of you are taking the conversation because I think you know I I have a soft spot for video game movies although most of them are are varying degrees of quality. Um, you know, we can talk about it. I also my favorite subgenre of anything is soldiers versus monsters, like hand down. That's sure. just, that is the thing that I enjoy, and that's entirely James Cameron's fault. Um, <laughs> you know, I think of films like um, The Empty Man, which has nothing to do mm. with the source material. Cullen Bunn's Empty Man is a brilliant uh, graphic novel series, but it is wildly, drastically, in every single way different than the movie. But the elements of like cosmic horror, cult, you know, secret society mm. shit, like both of those are, are present. So I like the notion of saying, look at the license, take what works, get rid of what doesn't. I've mm. seen batting around the notion that that uh, Doom Annihilation had a, a budget of about four million dollars, which on a, a, a normal uh, Hollywood production would be the budget just for wet pipes. Like that's it. That's you would spend <laughs> four million dollars just to get all of that shit right. Yeah. And I think that there's so many pieces of this film that that show the budget in terms of like. Is this it was is this a casting director's first choice on a lot of these parts? Maybe not. Is mm-hmm. is the fight choreography, you know, mm-hmm. I, did they have as much time to get it exactly the way that they want? No. But like there is an element to this film of it being the best version of it that it could be and knowing its limitations. And I think mm-hmm. that in an era where we, you know, it's a little outside of my purview. I'm not an action guy, but we have friends that are in sort of like the action community. The direct-to-video action community has its, is a renaissance. We are living in the golden oh, yeah. era of, a lot of good, good direct-to-video action movies and action stars right now. And this, to me, feels like it kind of fits within the best version of that, that when folks are talking about, oh, there's, like, this director that is, like, the greatest, like, you know, his fight choreography and all these movies that were streamed directly on Paramount, this is operating with a much, much lower ceiling but a much, much higher floor than a lot of its peers. I think you touched on something I think really key here, and that's also the film's budget. You know, I think we have different expectations for films based on uh, what they present. And I think if you see that there's going to be like a low budget adaptation of something that you think should be bigger than that, you're mostly just going to be mad it's not bigger than that. And a good example for that would be the Gem and the Holograms live action movie, which is actually quite fun for what it is. It's like a it's like a slumber party movie about an underdog band. But if you wanted the big sci-fi, everyone's on a motorcycle shaped like a guitar movie, they didn't have the money for that. You could either never get a Gem in the Holograms movie or you could get this. And I think if you adjust your expectations and say this is the low budget Gem in the Holograms movie, you can appreciate that. If you just want a straight up adaptation of the of the cartoon series, I can see why you're upset. But again, part of that is your expectation. When I look at Doom Annihilation, I look at a film that is, in some cases, straining against its budget. My favorite sequence in the movie, and it's mostly just because I can imagine the filmmakers pulling out their hair over this. There's a sequence that is very clearly intended to take place in like this like hydroponics lab where there's going to be a lot of plants everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's this extended action sequence where zombies keep popping out from behind plants but they very clearly only had a few plants. Like it's very clearly they had like two rows of like, we sent the PA out to home Depot this morning to get as many tall plants as he could. And he got 10. And then we had some fake plastic vines. And so there's like two long, like not even long, like two, like eight foot rows of plants slash fake plants. And we're trying to make that look like a labyrinth in editing. It doesn't work at all, but I'm amused that they tried and bless them for it. They did everything they could based on the finite resources that they had. 
and I grew up with, there's a lot of like older, like genre films back before genre films, like in the wake of star Wars started getting really big budgets. There was a time when sci-fi monster action movies were not huge box office draws. They were very limited box office draws. And so studios wouldn't spend a lot of money on them and you would see it in the narrative. You would see, Oh, that mask is, has a zip, uh, that costume has a zipper on it. Or, you know, the UFO has a string and they didn't even bother to hide it really well. They were working with what they had. And I have a lot of appreciation for filmmakers trying to make the most out of very little. And that is uh, admittedly, that's a bit of a super narrative, but I think if you consider that, and if you consider our relationship, not just with the film, but the filmmakers, a film like Doom Annihilation can be rather charming. Um, so I, and I, but it's, it's interesting though, because very few people I find have genuine sort of nostalgia for that. There've been a few movies that have capitalized on it. The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera is a comedy classic. I don't care what anyone says. I don't even know if it's still watched anymore, but it, it, it's a, the film that I'm pretty sure popularized the expression like doing science. Hmm. I don't think that was really a thing before that movie, but it's really, really great. And that's a wonderful homage to 1950s uh, sci-fi movies. Another one I think about is Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes which had come out like right on the heels of Sleepy Hollow, which was very famously this huge homage to this very wonderful atmospheric world of hammer horror. We needed a planet of the apes, you know, it was advertised as from the guy who did Batman. It's going to be a huge Gothic action thing. And it's very, very clear watching that movie that Tim Burton's aesthetic influences were that were 50 sci-fi was teenage caveman was earth versus the spider. This like, we're just going to drop a square jawed rock headed, mediocre white dude in the middle of some kind of sci-fi concept and we're going to see him stumble his way through it and romance a couple of people who are clearly better than him and at the end it's all gonna movie's gonna be over and i don't think there's nearly as much nostalgia (laughs) for that as there is for the hammer horror so i think even the people who acknowledge that weren't really into it. And also the movie isn't particularly good in a lot of ways, but I think even just the film's wavelength was elusive to a lot of people. So anyway, I, I like this yeah. low budget sci-fi aesthetic. I grew up watching a lot of low budget sci-fi movies. A lot of them were cleverer. I'd rather watch Fortress than Doom Annihilation any day, but still, I, I have fondness for that. Well, and like Annihilation keeps up with Doom and that's the thing that impressed me more on a rewatch and maybe I didn't give enough credit to the first time I watched it. Uh, the fact that the first Doom adaptation goes very heavy handed into like you get monsters early, you get all the action early. There's not, there's not a lot of downtime, which I really appreciate. And while I think there's a little more, let's say downtime and an annihilation, it really does give us the demon forms earlier than I remembered. Mm -hmm. And like their full costume, full everything and practical looking pretty good too. Exactly. Practical looks good in it. But not only that, but like annihilation goes to hell, like annihilation goes to the demon world and uh, the doom adaptation that I do think is superior. The first one, but like, that didn't even have the rocks to do that. It just had one rock. Ha! The, you know, that, that we were talking about how movies try to fix the video games. And I remember when that Doom, for the first Doom movie came out, it was like, it's about, they, they open a gate to hell. That's it. It's not complicated. And then they had this whole thing like the year is 2040. And for the first time, we have cracked the human genome. And I'm like, we've done that. 
we've actually met like by the time the movie had come out they'd actually like done the sci-fi thing they said couldn't be done until 2040 and they just made the whole movie pretty laughable to me uh although ironically rewatching doom annihilation i i got that same moment again because there's this one character who's like oh something bad's happening on space station i bet it's aliens and everyone's like there there are no aliens there's never been any evidence of aliens and then like in the last two years the government's like yeah there's aliens the government just flat out said there's aliens they're aliens they're they're out there we don't know anything about them but there you go they're aliens and that that ruined by the way the entire decade of the 90s for me because the entire decade of the 90s stuff like men in black and the x-files were predicated on the premise that if humanity found out there were aliens it would destroy all civilization it would like people would riot and like whatever turns out no one gives a shit nobody cares yeah and i want to um you talked about the hell thing just a second ago, uh, Donato. I want to I want to jump on that a little bit for a closing thought here too, because I think that um, a lot of the controversy around this film, or a lot of the assumptions, and we'll talk about super narratives um, here again for you, William. But I think a, a lot of folks assumed when this movie came out and they saw the first trailer. I've seen um, the director Tony Gillio get asked in interviews, "Oh, you just did this as like a rights play, right? Like the rights were up. Universal had a thing in their contract. If they didn't make another Doom movie by X, Y, and Z." then the rights revert back to the studio. That's why they did it. And, you know, obviously he speaks at length in all of his interviews. No, I went to them. Universal mm-hmm. was like, we don't want to fucking touch this anymore. Mm-hmm. Like a lot yep. of that. And as an audience member, you can be like, okay, is that true or is that not? I think that there's, again, super nerve. I think it's hard to articulate, but I think you know when somebody has a vision, when you're watching one of mm-hmm. these and you can tell somebody had an idea. There is a There is an mm-hmm. idea, a concept, a core, a something that got them excited to sit down and hammer out you know, a hundred pages of script or whatever. And for me, I think that hell sequence is that it's clear that when you watch that sequence unfold, that for better or worse, that there was, that this filmmaker had some skin in the game that he was like, I want to fucking try something. I want to take a big swing and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. And that is an element that, and I'm sorry, Donato, I feel like is missing from the previous movie is the notion of like, I'm going to like, I want to do something that may look bad or it may look great, but goddamn, mm. I want to try. And that's something that the the ambition, even if it's flaunted, or not flaunted, even if it's uh, even if it flops, yeah, uh, even if like you know you didn't have the money for it or some bad happened or I mean, the whole movie Ed Wood is about this, you know, I just they always had ambition and through lack of talent and bad circumstances and investors having their way, never was able to get even remotely what he wanted on the ca- right. in front of the camera. Um, and that's something that we do know happens, and it happens a lot. But yeah, it, it, I think one of the reasons why this movie's like expectations uh, were kind of in the toilet going in is that it emerged from uh, uh, Universal 1440 Entertainment, which is a division of Universal Pictures, like home video a company. It was made in 2005. And the vast majority of the films that they produce are straight-to-video sequels that really do feel like we're just doing this to preserve IP. Mm-hmm. They've done so many Scorpion King movies. One of them is good. I will go to bat for the Scorpion 3 Battle for Redemption. That's actually like a pretty ambitious, not bad movie. Uh, Dave Bautista and Kimbo Slicer in that. That's cool. Nice. Um, they, did, they did Tremors sequels. They did a sequel to Hard Target. They did sequels to Dragonheart. They did sequels to Bring It On. Um, they did multiple sequels to Death Race. They did the Tales from the Hood sequels. They did Granddaddy Daycare. Kind of have to respect the moxie on that one. They did a sequel that nobody knows exists. There was a sequel to the Inside Man. 
Like they do all of these movies and occasionally they'll do something that maybe isn't original, but isn't a sequel. Like they did that slightly underrated, but not particularly good Rob Zombie, the Munsters movie that came out a couple of years ago. Um, But that's kind of the raison d'etre. It really just feels like they're just doing stuff with the IP they have available. But when you actually watch a lot of those movies, as I sometimes unfortunately have, you can tell when the people making Kindergarten Cop 2 aren't really into it. And you can tell when the people making, I already said, Scorpion King 3 actually care. Mm -hmm. There's an attempt to genuinely entertain. They seem to actually like revel in trying to bring interesting things to the screen. Uh, and I think Doom Annihilation is one of those. And I think, again, it's 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 foiled in a lot of ways. The budget certainly doesn't help. It feels like there are definitely like roles that are clearly underwritten. I think part of that is on purpose. It's trying to be arch. It's trying to just be an alien's knockoff. Um, but a better actor could have brought more out of it. Yep. I think that's fair to say. Uh, again, I'm not in love with this movie, but I do think it gets kind of a, a it got a really rough shake when it came out. And I think it deserves better than it got. Well, to me, it also feels a little bit like test footage and not to say the entire mm. film is just out there to see if they can do something better. But mm. that hell sequence, so much of the earlier buildup, so much of what you just talked about and Monocle, like both of you talked about the characters being underwritten and, you know, some of them are just there to die. They're literally they have three They're, lines. Oh, yeah. They are just there to it's, die. True, even for really good movies sometimes, right. you know? Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. But like all you have to do getting... is show up. You have to hit like a body fat ratio and then you have to be killed. That's it. That is the entirety <laughs> of what you are being cast to do. Oh, God, tell me about but it. But like getting through that and getting to the hell sequence and going back to what Monogle said about the fact that like you can tell this director has a vision. This writer director went to Universal, wanted to do this film because I can see the movie that comes after Doom Annihilation. I can see what is in that hell sequence and bringing that to the next station, the next war. Like it just feels so much like there is so much more potential. And once again, I I didn't feel that the first time maybe because I went in with those expectations. I went in with those, we're getting more doom. I was pretty hyped on it. I was like, I we're getting another doom movie. I was really going in with like a lot of, maybe they cracked the code this time kind of moxie. And then to get that the first time, it felt like they were cutting off too short. It felt like I was almost getting what I wanted at that last scene. And that's when it ends. And you didn't show me the thing I wanted to see, but then going on a rewatch, I'm like, I actually understand that now. Like I, I understand now how much potential it did have and what it got to and what it could have been, but like not in the bad way this time. But again, there's, there's, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy, sadly, with a lot of the video game movies that we've had, where there's so much pressure. Will this finally be our Batman begins? Will this finally be the movie that shows people who don't respect video games that there's something to this because it translated to another medium and they can appreciate it Uh, as though that was the only way to get appreciation for video games is art. I think it was mostly just because we've been foiled so many times. We just want one to get it right. And so all of a sudden there's a ton of pressure on every video game movie to not just be fun, not just be okay, not just be reasonably well-produced and like deliver on its promises, but it's gotta be great this time, this time it's gotta be great. That's too much for anything to live up. You have to be spectacularly good. To, 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 to justify that level of maybe hype isn't the wrong word, but hope. And yeah, you were, you were never 
gonna get that. And I think we we this is why um, one of the things I talk about a lot is I think anticipation is kind of the enemy of critical discourse because you're forcing a movie. Uh, not to operate on its own terms, but to compete with whatever movie you have in your head. You know, you've been told by every podcast, every YouTube video you've watched, everyone on Twitter, uh, all the rumors, be they f- fake or real, uh, that this next, that, that Star Wars The Last Jedi is going to be about this. This is what's going to happen in it. This is what should happen in it. Any deviation from that is going to piss you off. And that is, I think it's a little irresponsible of the industry, actually, to rely so much uh, and to to issue, like, almost exclusively um, hype, advanced hype, advanced speculation, advanced theories about what is going to happen next in these movies, uh, and then force the movie to not only live up to that, but compete with that. Mm-hmm. And it's really unfair. And so, again, this is another reason why in my reviews I try to add a lot of context. I want people reading my review to understand that whatever you were sold, this is what it is, for better or worse. And hopefully, if you read my review in advance, you will at least be prepared, whether you like it or not, to at least gauge the movie on the movie's own terms and not the terms of someone who has decided in advance that it must be good or it must be crap or it must be viewed through this lens or it must deliver this scene or it's bad. It's a dangerous way to enter a movie. Because your odds of, even just as a fan, your odds of getting a movie that meets your exact expectations are incredibly slim. There's a good line in the movie Zero Effect, great movie, uh, where if you go into a situation, like if if you're searching for one thing, your odds of finding it are very small. Because of all the things in the world, you're looking for one of them. If you're searching for anything, your odds of finding it are very good. Because of all the things in the world, you're looking for some fucking great movie. I love that movie. Well, that brings us to uh, our last question of the podcast, which is where does this film go from here? So William, we'll start with you. I think, you know, we're always interested in how a film rediscovers an audience that it maybe didn't earn on the first pass. I think with a movie like doom annihilation, there's always going to be a little bit of an audience because there's always going to be more video games, right? So like it has a tie in product that will always have people go like, Oh, I didn't know there was a 2019 doom movie. Let me go watch it. But I'm curious, what, what do you think needs to happen? Could happen for this to be regarded in a lot of the same ways that we've been talking about it and not sort of like the hype of, Oh, this was a movie that was made by a low budget studio that they did because they wanted to keep the rights. I think that dismissiveness of that, oh, this was a low-budget studio, they just wanted to keep the rights, assuming, let's say, for example, that it is accurate. Um, that that gives you permission to dismiss something. And one of the things that really frustrates me about a lot of film history, especially when it comes to various uh, franchises, for lack of a better word, uh, is this eager desire to dismiss in, like installments that you find inconvenient. Oh, the Ewok movies, those don't count. no. Yeah. They were made. They may or may not be canon anymore, but that's irrelevant. Only like four James Bond movies are canon right now. You're telling me that Goldfinger should just be ignored from now on? Come on. It's all part of the history. So if you care about the history of Doom, and some people do, it's still a reasonably popular video game franchise, thanks in large part to Bethesda, which made a really, really good Doom reboot around the time this movie came out. Um, Or if you care about the history of video game movies, 
Uh, and I think a lot of people have noted that it's an, an interesting and weird subgenre in of itself. Uh, I think that there is definitely a streak of completionism in various forms of fandom. This is something that I believe in personally. And it's the basis of a lot of the uh, podcasts that I produce. Um, so if you care about watching all the video game movies, I think eventually you're going to run into Doom Annihilation. And I think you're going to find yourself saying, I think gradually over time, people are going to say, it's not great. I think I don't I don't think it's going to have people saying this is the best video game movie. I think that's pretty thin. But I think over time people will appreciate that this movie tried to give people what they actually claimed that they wanted, a relatively accurate adaptation. Struggled valiantly against their obvious budget limitations and did a reasonable job of surmounting them. Uh, and ultimately, while it may not be one of the best examples of video game movies, it is absolutely not one of the worst. And I think, like, if you were ranking, like, if you're going to do an article in whatever publication you do, and you're ranking every video game movie adaptation, Doom Annihilation should not be near the bottom. And I think when you start seeing it in the middle, you're going to say to yourself, oh, was it, was it okay? I should give that a try. And yeah. then maybe more people will appreciate it. And then at the very least, it won't be forgotten. And it will be more than a footnote. I think it will at the very least be appreciated as, here's an example of the, of the time they really, really tried. Yeah, it, it, that's actually, you know, I don't have much more to add that because the big problem for me with Doom Annihilation not having an audience is the fact that no one has seen it. I, I think this is one of those cases where it's not an 80s movie that has to get a resurgence. It's not something that had its small audience. It just didn't have one. It, it Doom, for as much as I love it, I 100% understand that really no one else did. So having, I think even having Doom Annihilation tied to the first movie in some way which we find out it's not it is a complete redo reboot but for them to even market it a little bit where it might even be a sequel where it might be tied to the first movie did it such a disservice where it needed to be its own entity completely it needed to have its own push it needed to be completely separate so that fact that even it was even tied to the first adaptation despite the games having such a tremendous groundswell of support and fandom it was like, why are we going to do this again? I, I, Bibbs, I think you said this before. You know, what? what's the point? What are we doing this again for? And the point is because, well, another filmmaker has another take on it. Like, like this can be resurrected. This can be something that we watch again. So mm -hmm. to find a way to just get people to see this, like writing about it, talking about it, somehow getting that hype, like, you know, it's got a 43% on Rotten Tomatoes on seven reviews and Bibbs, you're one of three positive ones. It's just, yeah. And, and again, like, that's not a bad thing. Like once I made the joke, no, it's I am, not just funny. I am often one of the only reviews sometimes in the movies we cover, which is hilarious, but this movie just needs to find an audience. And in doing yep. that, I think it has to be tied to video game culture. I think it has to be tied to video game adaptation pieces. It's, it just has to have that one article, let's say that, that mm -hmm. one ranking that one whatever where it just puts it on people's map versus disappearing because once again we're still in a culture where straight to vod is a stigma uh, i think streaming has broken that mentality a little bit and we've learned that you can it can have that but even then well it's not streaming it's straight to vod and i'm not going to pay seven dollars to rent this movie that couldn't even go to a theater so we got to break that we got to get through that and I don't see vinegar syndrome or someone taking a <laughs> boutique crack at a mm -hmm. Doom Annihilation. So this, this feels like a boxed set. Like you're going to be like forgotten video game movies released by Shout Factory. And it's going to be like, 
this and I don't even know. I'm trying to even think what would also be on that list. But uh, oh, um, DOA Dead or Alive, which is very good. That's a very very fun movie and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and it, it goes back to the fact that like Universal one four four zero, like that that arm, that production arm. Yeah, you know, like they were also responsible for Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky. Yeah. which to me, like. Those that, are good movies. They're good movies. Legitimately it, very good movies. And it kept the franchise going. So I like, I don't know, maybe there's a world where you can be like, listen, I know these other franchises did not keep going under this production arm, but Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky led to a TV show. So it's like, mm-hmm. maybe that's not all bad. Maybe you should give this Doom Annihilation one a try. And maybe we can get another one eventually because I do want to see the next sequel to this movie. I want to see the next maybe a little bigger budget this time version sure. of, of this vision, but there's, there's something here. And again, I'm not saying it's the best. I'm not saying it is the revitalization of video game movies, but I am saying this, this is a time that maybe I uh, was a little too harsh on one the first time. And I'll, uh, I'll throw a complete left field thing out here is that I, as Donato knows, I've recently um, started collecting alien comic books, which is oh. new for me, but a lot of fun. Cool. And through that and through kind of reading a bunch of different horror authors right now, I stumbled across the Johnny Christmas adaptation of William Gibson's original Alien 3 screenplay, which wow. is a comic book adaptation of the screenplay that William Gibson submitted for Alien 3 that got rejected by the studio, which is a fucking brilliant, um, brilliant script and brought to life on the page is is like you really get to see the full vision without any kind of budgetary limitations and what could have been it's it's inarguably now my favorite alien story but i would love to see i think that that is something kind of exploring that world a little bit has made me wonder like hey who says that tony Gilio couldn't go out and like work with an artist and adapt his original screenplay as like a graphic novel and kind of say here here's what i had in my head before all that other stuff got in the way i feel like that has become something that some filmmakers do is be like you know certainly don't want to say his name, but Joss Whedon talks about like the comic book adaptations was the secret angel season four or whatever. The, yeah. That yeah. Or the, he kept Buffy going after Correct. the series and considered it an actual canonical continuation of the characters. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to see something like that. You know, I think there's only been a couple of doom comic books and they were like released in the nineties during sort of peak doom culture. I would love to see somebody take a crack at, you know, glorified storyboards and see what this movie looked like in Tony Gillia's head when he was working on his computer because I think that there is a, I think there's a really great movie there. And I think that the more that, that they add legitimacy to the process, maybe through other forms of, of, you know, adaptation, I think it could serve this movie well, because if you can see what, you know, if, when you see what somebody else is seeing when they're, when you're working on a movie like this, if you can see the intent and what they were reaching towards, I think it makes it a lot easier for folks to sort of put away the knives and be like, all right, let's talk about how close they came instead of how far away they were. Yeah. I also think I want to add on really quickly. I, th- I think a streamer actually needs to get Doom. I-, I think that's what needs to happen because no studio, after seeing the f- the you know quote unquote flop of the first one and how Doom Annihilation went nowhere, no studio will ever give this franchise the money it deserves moving forward. Where what a streamer did for something like Prey, you know, Predators was kind of fledgling at the box office. It was making mediocre returns, but there really wasn't any groundswell oh, of box The office. Predator was actually kind of a bomb. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. so that was all going downhill, but Prey revitalized that franchise on a streamer because it got a decent budget versus what it would have gotten in theaters. It got the budget that it needed to yeah. do what it intended to do. Yes. Which is very, very key here. And with something like Doom, there are certain things you need to budget for. 
monsters. Wet pipes. Production design. Yes. <laughs> but uh, there, there are certain things that you absolutely cannot cheap out on and certain things that you can. And that's what budgeting is. You, you pick your battles. So, yeah, I think there's I think there's an even better Doom movie out there. Something. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's enough material maybe for a series. I think that's pretty yeah. probably kind of stretching it because let's be honest here. If there's one thing Doom has never been amazing at, it's character development. But I think there's a good Doom movie to be made. And I think Doom Annihilation comes closer than people give it credit for. Well, that's it. If you have, uh, if you've borne with us this whole time, hopefully, if you have not seen Doom Annihilation, you'll give it a shot because I think that this is a movie that I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm with you, Liam. I don't, I don't necessarily love it, but rewatching it, I was like, oh, I, re- I respect the hell out of it. So, I hope that folks give it a shot because what it does well, it does, it, it succeeds despite a lot of things stacked in its favor, and I love to see that. Um, we want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is your opportunity to talk about things. You know, if people want to learn more um, about these, if they want to kind of tap into these movies that you're watching and see what you're doing and kind of engage with you, social media channels, website, where are places folks should go to connect with you? Well, um, I write reviews for The Wrap, not every week, but I write reviews for The Wrap. I write reviews for The Film Verdict. I write uh, uh, articles for Slash Film. Uh, but if you want to see my work in kind of its most unexpurgated form, uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network is a series of podcasts that I host with my fellow film critic, Whitney Seibold. Um, there are a lot. Uh, it's actually it's not just one podcast. It's a series of podcasts uh, currently on the main channel, uh, which you can get from just uh, subscribing on apple spotify wherever you get your podcasts uh we have our main show critically acclaimed we review tv shows uh, sorry we review new movies uh we uh I have so many podcasts uh <laughs> we review new movies on critically acclaimed we have a current a podcast that we're doing speaking of completionism called thank godzilla it's friday where every Friday we're reviewing another film in the Godzilla or Godzilla adjacent uh, uh, franchise. Uh, We're going in chronological order. Uh, We just released an episode about destroy all monsters as of this recording. And then the next episode is about Bambi meets Godzilla, uh, which actually ended up being like 30 times longer than the actual film. Um, Then we have uh, uh, other podcasts as well on that network. And then on our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we have a lot of other shows. Uh, that are uh, really ambitious. We have our show All Our Yesterdays where we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in order. Uh, We are, I think we just had our 200th episode of that, so we're halfway through Star Trek The Next Generation. But if you sign up now, there's a huge back catalog of the original series, animated series, the first five movies, and most of Next Gen. And we're going to keep going until we're done. We've timed it out. It's going to take us like 10 years to catch up. Um, then we've got uh, uh, Only the Best. We review every single movie ever nominated for Best Picture uh, and decide what we think should have won. And we place those in both their historical context and a modern context because that's just as valid, despite what some people say. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we're currently on uh, 1953. So we just did uh, the year that From Here to Eternity won, which was a hell of a year. Um we also have a show called Only the Best International, where we're attempting, and this is going to get trickier because a lot of these movies are harder to find, to review every movie ever nominated for Best International Feature at the Academy Awards. And we just did the 1953 film Gate of Hell, uh, which uh, the first several years they did that award, it was only it was only given, there was, it wasn't competitive. But once we start getting into the nominees, a lot of those movies are very historically obscure now, and that's going to... We're going to have to turn into Indiana Jones here. We're going to have to really do some exploration in order to find some of them, but yeah. it's going to be a fun trip. We do commentary tracks on that side as well. We have other shows that we've done in the past that are now completed, like Holy Batman, 
Holy with a W, where we reviewed every single Adam West installment of Batman. Um, so there's a lot of stuff, basically. Yeah. I love history. I love being completionist. I love looking at the full context of everything. Uh, and uh, all of that's there uh, over at uh, that website. Uh, also, ooh, I have a side hustle. I, I work with my partner, M. Lapis da Silva, uh, on Salt Cat Soap, where uh, we make and sell designer soaps. Uh, they are, uh, you know, each soap is not just practical. It is a work of art. Uh, and you can, uh, head on over. We have a Ko-Fi, uh, or is it coffee? K-O-F-I? Coffee, I think. I've heard heard both. So yeah. Yeah. If you, if you find us on social media, if you go to Twitter and I refuse to call it anything else, you at salt cat soap, you can find links and it's on Instagram as well. You can find links to buy it individually, or we have a soap of the month club on Patreon, patreon.com slash salt cat soap. Uh, for a flat fee, we'll send you one or two soaps per month uh, that are uh, partly chosen by our our patrons. They vote for what we're going to do, uh, and um, yeah, we're 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 in the process of making a lot of soaps right now. Uh, it's Halloween season, and one of the soaps that we make is a glow in the dark ghost soap, which uses oh, a, nice. a, a mica that is that's perfectly safe. But like, if you actually like turn off the light in your bathroom, it glows blue. So you've got these little ghosts, and they're very very cool. So those are, those are, I don't know if they're available now, but I think they'll be available soon. That's amazing. Uh, Donato, where do people go to find the soaps that you're making? You don't want my soaps. I, okay, fair. <laughs> I, I cannot, I'd mind do not glow in the dark for the right reasons. Um, oh, and, I, and I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani, obviously, and Blue Sky and Instagram and all that stuff. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky and Instagram and a letterboxed and a little TikTok from now and then at Donato Bomb. Uh, up and coming for me uh i guess after this when this posts i'll be done with fantastic fest technically um but all my reviews will still be coming because i'm a, a very tired boy so you can follow those on slash film you know where my work is usually ign bloody disgusting fangoria slash film pace magazine you can also find i don't know i'm around doing other things don't worry about it just go on the socials just uh, um, walk out of your house and start yelling things about new metal, and Donato will find you. I think that's how that works. Two thousands new metal. What? That disappeared. I don't nowhere. know. I have no idea what your musical tastes are. Um, I like my biscuits limp. There we go. Some kid in college starts playing chop suey and acoustic guitar and appear out of a closet. <laughs> what? Uh, go to Don- go to Donato's online shop and order his never-ending collection of System of a Down posters uh, for resale. He he has his own eBay account. It's incredible. You can follow me on social media, really just monogle.bsky.app. That's it. That's where I am. Um, the rest of it is exhausting to me. And as always, we encourage you to follow um, the website. Go to certifiedforgotten.com. We're on a really good editorial calendar right now. We've got, I think, articles, uh, two articles a week for the next couple of weeks. You'll have plenty of new content, such a dirty word, but plenty of new content to check out and some really New to us stuff, too. Uh, we got some pitches this last push on things that, that neither Donato and I had heard of, and we're really excited to to read the articles ourselves and learn more about those movies. So do that, and if you like what you see, there's patron links all over the website. So click on one of those and consider supporting. We promise you, oh my God, we promise you none of that money goes to us. It entirely goes to the site and to our writers. We have not made a dime on Certified Forgotten in four years. Give us your monies so we can give it to other people and still pay out of our pocket. Correct. Yep. It's a bad business model, but we never said we were smart business boys. Uh, William, thanks so much for coming on the show. It has been great. It has been great to get your insights into the industry and this movie in particular. And we will hope to invite you back sometime soon. 
Anytime. Thank you so much. I, this has been a real treat. I love you guys. Donato, take us out. Semper motherfucker. Nice.